Jeffrey Owens has lived an interesting life story. He was born in Brooklyn, New York, to Ethel and Major. His mom, Ethel, was a music and literature teacher. His dad, Major, was a librarian. He later served in the U.S. House of Representatives. He grew up with stories. He loved to tell them, be in them. Like Peter Pan, when he was in high school, that kind of set his career direction. He went to the New York School for the Performing Arts and later graduated with honors from Yale. He's appeared semi regularly on TV shows, but he's also an accomplished Shakespearean expert. An actor, director, coach, he founded the Brooklyn Shakespeare Company. He taught master classes in acting and Shakespeare and workshops in universities across the country. Now, you may not have seen Jeffrey in those kind of roles, but you may recognize him more as the lovable but socially dim Elvin Thibodeau on The Cosby Show. I went off the air 25 years ago, and most aren't experienced scholars, so it's a surprise to the news again recently when somebody snapped a picture of Jeffrey working at Trader Joe's. Within hours, it went viral. The sensation of the tag, starving actor, Cosby star bagging groceries. Tone was a shock, and look how far he's falling. It was kind of a, a job-shaming thing going on. Jeffrey worked there for 15 months. His family needed a little more money to kind of make ends meet, and then he wants some flexibility to continue working in acting. And here's what he said. He said, I hope this moment will pass, but when it does, I hope my experience will reshape. Here's what he said. What it means to be to work, the honor of the working person and the dignity of work. He said, we need a reevaluation of what it means to work. And the idea that some jobs are better than others, that's actually not true. There's no job that's better than another job. It might pay better, might have better benefits, might look better on a resume and on paper, but actually, it's not better. Every job is worthwhile and valuable. So what started off as a tabloid piece of celebrity news actually helped start, for a couple of days anyway, a pretty substantive dialogue about the nature and the virtue of work. Now, you and I don't hear that kind of conversation uh, anymore very much. We talk about work, we talk about the pragmatic aspects of work, what skills you need, how many hours you work, management, labor, wage, benefits, schedule, things like that. We talk about the politics of work. We talk about a living wage and immigrant work permits and retraining factory workers for a digital economy. When the last time you had a conversation with anybody about the meaning of work? And why did this incident spark that discussion? I thought about that a lot, and I think I think it's, it was that there was this crash at the intersection between our culture's obsession with celebrity and how we conceive of work. This whole thing is about definitions and values. Here's how it kind of works in our society. Work is what ordinary people do, because ordinary people have bills they have to pay. Celebrities are famous. Fame brings a lot of money that pays the pesky bills and enables you to have people do the stuff for you that the rest of us call work. We think celebrities have the Willy Wonka ticket to a life of ease. Once you're a celebrity, you don't have to deal with the stuff ordinary people do. Uh, you can work at night to work at anything other than what you really enjoy. So even thing of minor celebrities been off the radar for a long time, like Jeffrey Owens, working at Trader Joe's, was for many people like kind of oil and water. It was two things in common that they couldn't really find a way to hold together. Now, here's the thing. Those of us who are following Jesus, kind of nav- we kind of navigate a similar intersection. And here's the, the difference here. Between our calling 
as followers of Jesus and the work that we do every day. Because here's the thing, we gather here on, on Sundays to worship with God's people. And, and for many of us, not most of us, we, we share values and goals and priorities built around the person, the gospel, and the calling of Jesus. We learn to live with God's Word as our authority. Our hearts are stirred to love Him and, and to follow Him. And we're urged to trust His power, to live hopeful and helpful in the world. And then the alarm goes off on Monday morning. And we step into a world and a workplace that operates on a very different set of values and goals and priorities. Driven by things like profit and market share and investor return and sales goals and customer satisfaction and competition and performance expectations and what you're seeing like on social media and all those other things. And most don't see the Word of God as their authority. And while many people may appreciate the morality of people who say they're followers of Jesus, most don't want us to really talk about the realities of the faith all that much in the day today. It can feel sort of like you're a turtle trying to make your way across Scottsville Road about 4.30 on Friday afternoon. <laughs> it's a dangerous thing. Kind of slide your way through the middle of all those things. But now here's the thing. Work is such a huge part of our life. You add this up. In an average week, 24 hours a day, 168 hours a week. The average American adult sleeps seven hours a night. It leaves 119 waking hours. The average work week now across all fields is 36 hours per week. That's 31% of our waking hours are spent working, at least. Many of us work many, many more hours than that, so our percentages go up even more. So if being a disciple of Jesus is about more than just this for an hour or so on Sunday morning, if in fact it is to define and shape all that we are in all those areas, and if, in fact, one-third of our life is spent at work, then it's crucial that we develop some convictions about how to navigate that intersection between faith and work that we step into every Monday morning and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday and Saturday. The Bible talks a lot about, about work. Work was initiated in the Garden of Eden before the fall, so it was a result of the curse. There was work in paradise. Part of being human. God worked. Humans worked. We're building His image, right? And here's what, what God said. He said, the Lord God took the man, put him in the garden of Eden to work it, to keep it. That's right at the very beginning before anything else happened. Work was, was already there. Work is described throughout the Bible. David was a shepherd. Nehemiah was a government official. Amos tended fig trees. Peter and Andrew were fishermen. Paul was a tent maker. Lydia was a dealer in expensive cloth. Teaching about work is scattered throughout the Bible. It's in the law, it's in the Proverbs, it's in the prophets. And then you come to the New Testament epistles, like Colossians, which is where we're going to be today. I want to encourage you to turn your Bible to Colossians chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's a black hard brown one in the pew in front of you. You really need to follow along to make sure that we're not making this stuff up. This is our authority, is the Word of God. See what's there. And here's what happens in the epistles. The first part of the epistle usually describes the gospel of Jesus, what it means to know Him, be in relationship with God through Jesus. And then the second part of the gospel of the epistle will be about the application of that. So if this has happened to you, right, then this is the way your life looks and what it what it looks like. 
So Colossians is like that. The first part talks about the gospel. It says Christ is in you, the hope of glory, and it describes the beauty of the relationship with the Jesus who is over everything, and, and it's, it's a glorious picture of the gospel and how he pulls all things together. And then you get to Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. It says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things on earth. You've died. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. Since you've had this life, right? Now, it says, put to death old life and old patterns. Put on new life and new patterns. In chapter 3, verse 17, he sums it up and says this, And whatever you do, in word or day, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Whatever you do. And the next little bit, he's going to describe what that is. Whatever you do in your relationships, whatever you do in your marriage, whatever you do in your parenting, whatever you do in your response to your parents, and whatever you do in your work life. So we're going to focus on this morning. It's Colossians 3, verses 22 through 24. If you stand in honor of the reading of God's Word, Lily's going to come and read it for us. And so let's hear what the Lord says as we stand to hear what the Lord is saying. Colossians chapter 3, verses 22 through 24. Bond servants, obeying everything, those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing for the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily, as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are, you are serving the Lord Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks. You can be seated. Thank you, Lord. Appreciate that. Now, let me just make a couple observations about this before we kind of jump into this. It's just bond service, the first word there that we read. Let's understand we're not talking about slavery as a cultural institution built on racial bigotry like the slavery that we think about in the United States around the time of the Civil War. You hear the word bond there, bond service, it's, it's the idea of being bound or connected to someone. So someone, it was not those people that were bound to the person because they had financial obligations and they would work those financial obligations off. Or they were prisoners of war who'd been brought back and they were going to work for a season and bring a certain financial return that would gain them their freedom in time. But no matter how the reason was, in this culture, bond servants were household staff, they would have been in charge of large agricultural operations, but they also would have been the people most likely to be involved in what we today would call the professions. Teachers, doctors, lawyers, businessmen and women. And so it was legitimate and legitimate for us to talk about, about the idea of daily work out of this. But notice one important truth here. There's actually no mention in these verses of what you do for your work. Jeffrey Owens is right about this. Every job is worthwhile and valuable. So there's no, there's no sense in the Scripture that any job or profession is more innately spiritual or valuable than any other. Any legitimate work uh, is fine for a disciple to be engaged in. Blue collar, white collar, hourly, salary, full time, part-time, all kinds of across the sweep of our economy, if it's not illegal or unethical or unbiblical, it's okay for a disciple of Jesus to be engaged in that kind of work. But there is a dominant theme that applies in all these verses. It's not what you do, but who you work for. Four times, says the Lord, you work for the Lord Christ, the fear of the Lord. No matter who signs your paycheck, 
no matter the logo that's on your polo, no matter if you're if you're self-employed or if you're, you have the smallest name down in the farthest corner of a huge organizational chart for a multinational corporation, if you're a disciple of Jesus, you work for King Jesus. You work under a sovereign, we call him the Lord. A sovereign who lays claim to all we are, all we have, and all we do, including our work life. And it says there in verse 22, we work in the fear of the Lord. Now, that carries the idea of what the Reformers called Coram Deo, or being under the gaze of God. In other words, God certainly sees everything. Nothing's hidden from Him. We're accountable to Him, what we do. But even more, it is this sense of reverence and awe that the God of the ages is present with us in those moments of our work, fully in His wisdom and His strength, and that all things, including our work, are measured by and find their meaning in connection to His perfect standard of what's good, beautiful, and true. It's all woven together, so it's not just, there's nothing ordinary about it. God Himself is involved in the midst of that kind of work. So what's it mean to say, I'm working for King Jesus in my life? Well, the first thing what you see is this, that working for King, King Jesus shapes the way we work. It shapes the way we work. Yeah, let's remind you again what the order is here in Colossians. I've come to Christ. I have a relationship with Him. And now, because of that, I'm a different person. And since I'm a different person, because of my relationship to Jesus, I'm going to work differently. So how do I work differently as a disciple of Jesus? Disciples work with submission to authority. He says there, Bonservers, obey your masters in everything. Not any gathering of two or more people. Somebody has to be in charge, or the whole thing crumbles into chaos. If you're in any kind of situation where everybody wants to be in charge, where every person wants to be the number one, where every person wants to get things their own way, if you got that, you put that together, everybody wants to be in charge, everybody wants to get things their own way, what do you get? You get Washington, D.C. <laughs> That's what you get. You get chaos. You get a mess. But the reality is that disciples recognize that all authority is put in place by God. So in your job, if you have a boss, as long as you're not being asked to do something illegal, immoral, explicitly unbiblical, you can and should follow their direction and support them. Now, having said that, let's also recognize not all in management positions are sweetness and light. It's possible that you're in this season working for a person who's just simply a jerk. And they're not nice. And they're not good. And you know that. And you see that. I get it. But remember, disciples are called to pray for enemies. We're called to be patient. Show love and mercy to those who are outside and see what's going on. So we respond with respect to the position they hold, even if we struggle with the way they act in that position. That's what submission looks like. And that if you are the boss, if you have people working for you, you don't get out of this. Look in chapter 4, verse 1. It says, Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. So if you're if you have people that work for you, you have responsibility and accountability for how you treat them and how you deal with them. So disciples working under King Jesus work with submission to authority. But we also work with integrity. 
with integrity. Verse 22 says that don't work by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart. People pleasers. It's a word, isn't it? People pleasers are those who are insecure about some aspect of their life, insecure about their acceptance from somebody that they think is really important to them. And, and, and or they have a personal agenda to gain something from somebody else. So a people pleaser is always gauging the room so they can speak and act and work to their best advantage. Their motive is never just about themselves, about, about the work. It's always about themselves, about who they are. Now, here's the difference with disciples. Remember, the gospel comes first. So a disciple who has entered a relationship with God through Jesus Christ has found forgiveness and acceptance from the most important person in the universe. So that settles the sense of acceptance. Also, we trust that He's going to provide all that we need to live the lives He's called us to, so we don't need anything else. So, so we don't have to play that game of trying to gauge that. That means that we can work the same when the boss can see and everybody's in the room, when the boss can't see and nobody's watching. It includes things like truthfulness and dependability and responsibility and consistency and teamwork and doing your part. All those things are part of working with integrity. It means that we value people more than anything else, that we don't want to treat people, whether above us or below us, on the, on the chain as, um, as we don't treat them like widgets. We don't treat them like things that we can use to kind of get what we want, but we recognize that they are precious, eternal souls created by God to be respected and loved. What this is really, it's a life of seamless simplicity for the disciple. Because if I live this way, I don't have to juggle which person I am in this moment. I can just be who I am. I'm not a different person when the boss is there and when the boss is not. Not a different person because of what's going on in the room and what's not. I'm the same person with the same attitude and the same words and the same work ethic all the time no matter what's going on. So if I'm serving King Jesus, working under authority, I'm working with integrity, I'm also working with joyous enthusiasm. This is verse 23. Whatever you do, Work heartily at the Lord, not just for people. Heartily is a great word. To be engaged with full energy from your heart. Can't you tell when people are doing their job with all they have and when they're just hitting plug and play and getting through the day? You can tell. Well, I, was at, I was at breakfast a few days ago at Cracker Girls early in the morning, and our server was a young lady named Jay. And Jay wants to be in the health field, wants to be a holistic medicine, and, she, and she's not there yet. She's trying to find an opportunity to get there, and she's not where she really wants to be. But in that moment, she was fully with us. And when she's taking my order from my smokehouse breakfast to a scrambled no grits, bacon, and, and business and gravy, sorry, I don't make you hungry. <laughs> She was so joyful and so good, engaging back and forth. And I, after I missed this in an earlier service, somebody came and told me that they have known her for years, and that is in fact who she is and how she goes about her work. How do you do that? I'm doing this task in my work for Jesus. I'm filing papers for Jesus. I'm making this client call for Jesus. I'm prepping this proposal for Jesus. I'm teaching these students for. For Jesus, I'm seeing this patient for 
Jesus. I'm taking this piece of machinery for Jesus. I'm studying in this way and taking this test for Jesus. I'm engaged in that way. So, so I'm doing it. So I want to delight Him. I want to please Him in that way. So we begin to work that way. We begin to live that way. Here's what happens. It also enables the disciple to work with clarity about what matters most. What sort of rewards do you and I expect when we do a job well? When we work hard, right? we might expect a better paycheck, or a promotion, more influence, maybe more benefits, a better schedule. And for those who work for King Jesus, he says the reward is none of those things. All those things are earthly and they're measurable and they're fine and they come in time. They're fine. But look what it says in verse, in verse 24. It says, Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. Now I'm intrigued by the fact that it says the inheritance, not a inheritance, the inheritance, something specific. What's it talking about? That one word ties everything in our work life back to the gospel of Jesus because inheritance is a family word. So it reminds again of what the good news is. Here's the good news that a holy God pursues rebel sinners who decide they want to be in charge of all things. They're at war with him. All of sin, that's us. Out of his radical love, he sent his son to be the sacrifice to take the death penalty for rebels. He takes the death penalty so they can go free. But then in this indescribable act of fierce mercy, this same holy God not only forgives these rebel sinners, but he adopts them into his family as his own children and brings them around the table with his risen son. So here's the good news. Rebels against God become sons and daughters of the king. And so he's made it to be. This is the good news of Jesus Christ. So if you have repented of sin and trusted Christ, Romans 8 says you have received the spirit of adoption by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ. Heirs mean we're going to get inheritance. He promises an inheritance. What could it be? An inheritance a treasure passed from one generation to the next. Well, Jesus said this. He said the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. And his joy, he goes and sells all he has and buys that field. He said, it's like a merchant in search of fine pearls. who finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all he had and bought it. Listen, the treasure of highest joy, the pearl of greatest price, is Jesus. It's the gospel. It's the good news. It's the promises of all that God is. It's the kingdom of God. The sphere of which our Heavenly Father owns and has sway over all things. Now, when you realize that, that He's the King over the entire universe, and that's His kingdom and His place, and you hear what Jesus said one time. Jesus said this, Fear not, little flock, He said, It is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. <laughs> to give you the kingdom. Now, there's no fine print here. There's no little superstar thing that says, we'll check, check later, A, B, C, D. No, he just flat out says it. Give you the kingdom. He intends, if you're his disciple, to give you the fullness of all that he has. And all that he has not earned, he means to give you the kingdom. Eternal things. 
things no eye has seen or ear has heard, things beyond all we can imagine, the finest things of earth are just a pale hint of what God can give us. Yes, it involves a place called heaven. Yes, it involves going to heaven and not having sin or trouble or difficulty or sickness or all those kinds of things, but even more, it's Him and all that He has. So Peter says this, He gives an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. So right now we have blessings from our Father, and they're good, and they're hints, though, of the fullness of all that He has. This inheritance never runs out. Let me paint a picture for you of what it's like. You're going to see more and more of His kingdom, more and more of who God is, and more and more of what God has, more of His glory. And let's just say, it's as if you were climbing a mountain, and you're climbing down to the very top peak, and you have a vista, and you go over the vista, and you can see for miles, and you see the beauty that is there. And what you're seeing is a little bit of a picture of God's glory, or God's faithfulness, or God's promises, or what God's been doing in the world that you didn't understand, or, or how God's at work, or God's goodness, or God's joy, or God's peace. And you see pieces of that. And you climb, and you climb, you look, and you think, oh, that's all I can take. And then you notice there's another mountain. And you climb a little higher and see even more, because remember, this is God we're talking about, who has no beginning and no end, and He says, I'm going to give you all that is mine, all that I own, all that I have, and we're going to give that, and we're going to climb mountain after mountain after mountain. We climb for a million years. And you think, oh, surely I've come to the end of all that he has and all that he gives and all that he owns. And we get to the top of that last peak after a million years of climbing. I'm telling you, brothers and sisters, there's going to be a peak even higher beyond that one. Because he's big and he's good and he's glorious and he's strong. He said, I'm going to give you all of those things. He's reserved it for you. Now, understand something. We don't live our Christian lives in order to get that someday so we can earn it. We live our Christian lives, we work the way we do because we already have it. He's given it to us. Do you see how nothing can compare with that? So we bring that into our work life. We fully engage work for what it is, but not more than what it is. We know what the price tags are, and we don't buy what the world says when it says this work and what you can get and the money you can get and all you can get. There's enough that is there. Disciples can't be bought off by anything a job can offer. People say, oh, your job, that's who you are, what you do, that's your identity. Oh, really? No, I'm a child of the king forever. That's who I am. No, no, no. Your job, that'll give you significance. You'll be somebody in the world. You have that kind of job. Oh, really? I'm involved with things that are going to last for eternity, forever. Oh, no, yes, your job will give you security. You've got to get a good paycheck and a 401k and your retirement. You've get all those things so you'll be secure in your life. Oh, really? My Heavenly Father says, I'm going to give you an inheritance that will be forever and never fade and never run out. That's what I'm going to give you. I'm not going to buy the mess the world says that your job is everything. It's not because Jesus is always, always, always better. So here's the thing. We see work the way it is, right? We see things as they are. And we have the perspective, we have convictions and habits 
to make disciples of Jesus the very best employees of all. Because they see things as they really are. Now, so when we're between Jesus, that's what we work, what we do, right? We also shape the why of our work. Why do we work? We talk about our work as a job or a career. It would be really helpful if we recovered an older word, the word vocation. There's two problems with this. We have reduced vocation to a category of skill-based work. Electrician, plumber, uh, uh, carpentry, aspects of IT or healthcare, that's a vocation. But if you look at the word in the Latin, here's what you see. Vocation. From vocatio, a summons. Vocare, to call. And look at that box. It's a voice. It has to do with calling, of hearing something. A sense of call, usually from God. Now, that's great. Said, but we have further reduced the idea of vocation to identify only those who are engaged and get their living from Christian ministries. So, vocation are people with pastors and ministers and missionaries and campus ministers and chaplains. I have a job. Vocations for those in, here's the phrase, full-time Christian service. I hope you know by now we're sitting all this morning. All the disciples of Jesus are in full-time Christian service. This thing you work for King Jesus, you have a call, you have a vocation. How's that work? I'm an accountant, I'm a teacher, I'm a salesman, I'm a stay at home mom, I'm in marketing, public relations, I'm in construction, I work on cars. Doesn't feel spiritual, doesn't feel vocation y to me. That's my job, my ministry. Well, that's why I work at the preschoolers on Sunday morning, and I'm a table shepherd, I'm a connectors leader, I serve as a, a greeter at the door at church on Sundays, I sing in the choir. Those are things that, that's my ministry, but just think for a second. Why did you choose the job you have? That matched you, right? You have some inclinations, some aptitude for that kind of work. Well, where did those inclinations or aptitudes come from? Oh, God made you. He created you from the inside out. He wired you and put you together. So why have you then gotten the jobs and opportunities you have? Because they match the design and the goodness the king gave you. So why will you go to work specifically where you will work tomorrow morning? Because... The king placed you there on purpose. Why? It's part of a subversive strategy. The king has to capture more hearts with the gospel and make more rebels into sons and daughters. Now look what Jesus said. He said, the kingdom of God is that the men should scatter seed on the ground. Seeds rise day and night and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. He's scattering the seed. We're gathered here on Sunday as disciples. That's great. But then we're scattered like seed all across the community in specific places. Teachers in that specific school with those students. Students in that particular class or that particular course that I'm taking in that way. Coworkers who share this particular cubicle. A nurse on that particular floor. Child care for those kids and their families. The manager of those people assigned to that specific shift. This network of clients or, or coworkers. Here's what the king is doing. He's placing disciples who have Jesus next to somebody who needs Jesus and the gospel. So Titus says this. He says, bond servants of the Lord, you need to show all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. So as we're working, what we work for, here's why we work to make much of Jesus, to point out and display the gospel of Jesus through our words and our deeds so it stands out to people that are around us. Why? Somebody here is working with somebody who's been abused. You know that stuff doesn't just happen on the television for hearings. 
It's happened to somebody else. And they need to hear that there's a Savior who brings healing. You have somebody who's got a family that's in turmoil, and they need to hear about the peace that Jesus can bring. You work with somebody whose dream has died, and they need to know there's hope in Jesus. Or they're confused, that Jesus will show them the way. People you're working with to carry burdens in the dark, and that they'll never laugh again. And you can tell them there's joy that comes in when there's people you're working with that something's died in them, something's died around them, and you're there to tell them there's a Jesus who brings the resurrections over and over again. And the only way they'll hear that is because you are there. There's some people saying, I love where I work. Everybody's a Christian. Listen, that's the church. That's safe and easy and comfortable and affirming and encouraging, and that's great. But that's not why you're here. You and I have been scattered in the world among people who don't know Him. We're sent to make much of Jesus, make much of the gospel. Yes, it's messy and confusing and overwhelming and painful and uncomfortable, and it gets us in trouble sometimes, but that's the mission. That's why we're here. If you are a Christian, you're a disciple. If you're a disciple, you're a servant of the King. You're a subject of the King. You have a vocation because you've been called to make disciples. Go make disciples. He said. Do you work like this for King Jesus? What adjustments would you need to make in your attitudes, your approach, your relationships? Starting tomorrow, when you step into that intersection tomorrow morning, serve King Jesus. Let me a moment as we begin to sing. You might want to come here and kneel and kneeling is taking your hands off your job or your career, whether you're a checkout at Trader Joe's or, or you're in the top corner office on the top floor and offered again to King Jesus to do what he wants to. Can you imagine what would happen if hundreds of us scattered to live Jesus' subversive agenda in the world, people seeing and hearing and encountering the life-transforming power of the gospel of Jesus just because a bunch of ordinary disciples got up one morning and went to work. Let's stand together. Let's pray. Lord, it's astonishing to us the beauty of what you have given us and what you have promised in your gospel. Lord, remind us again that, oh, Lord, it's not just for us to enjoy and celebrate. It's for us to give away that what you have given us has come to us on the way to somebody else. Or somebody here this morning who may still be a rebel. It's time for them to become your child. I pray today they would repent of sin and trust you. There's others of us here who have already come into that relationship. And maybe today would be a day that you would help us take hands off again, lay our job, our career down before you. And say, King Jesus, what do you want to do with that? Would you show us? Would you make it clear? And all these things, Lord, here's what we know. We can't do it by ourselves. It's too big. It's wonderful, but it's big. We need you. Help us as we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You come as we worship together.